Hey Ron, great to see you again for podcast number three. So from here on, we'll start to release our podcast weekly on Mondays. So everybody needs to remember to subscribe on Google, iTunes or Spotify. Well mate, it's early December 2021 and the world is starting to get a bit skittish about the Omnicom variant. How would you feel about going back into another lockdown? Come on, Jeannie, mate. We're not going to start our third episode talking about COVID, are we? It's a bit like you asking me what the weather's like today. Okay, Ron, fair enough. But this week's guest is an absolute expert in human behaviour. He has great insights into how the environments we find ourselves in have impacted on our behaviour and our evolution. All right, Jim. You promise no more COVID chats at the pub after this then? Absolutely, mate. I promise. So, our guest this week is Dr. John Allen. He speaks to us all the way from Kentucky in the, in the United States. He is an anthropologist who has undertaken research across the world into human behaviour. Sounds so exciting, mate. And I'll be really keen to chat with him about food given by nutrition studies and the books he's written. He has great insights into why we eat, what we do, and where our cravings and desires for foods come from. So let's listen and we'll have a bit of a yarn after. One of the goals Ron and I had when we set up the set up our podcast was to interview academics. We wanted to speak to people who have devoted much of their life to researching some of the most interesting questions of our times. Today's guest was a perfect fit, Dr. John Allen. Dr. Allen is an anthropologist who has spent much of his professional career focusing on the evolution of the brain and how humans interact with food two hugely interesting areas of research and so important today. In a society where mental health is becoming increasingly acknowledged and understood, and also where we are becoming more and more conscious of how we eat. Is it sustainable? Is it just? Dr. Allen's work has now, folk, has now flowed into various books he has authored. The Lives of the Brain, Human Evolution, and the Organ of the Mind, Second one, the omnivorous mind, our evolving relationship with food, and most recently, home, how habitat made us human. Three really interesting areas, and we should get into all of them today. He is a fascinating person who lives with his family in Kentucky, and we are honored to have him on the R&J Yarn today. So welcome, John. Thanks for having me. John, we like to start with some quick fire questions, a bit like this or that, um, just to kind of get a quick, some quick conversation. So um, you've done a, a few field trips to a few different places, um, Japan, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea. What would you say is your most interesting um, field work story? Well, the most interesting story I can think of that relates to food in particular um, and I was just thinking about this the other day about how once you get to be a grown up, you often don't ever have to eat things, right? It's kids who are always like feeling like, oh, they're forcing me to eat it. But part of being a grown up is saying, you know, I don't like this. Like we had our first President Bush was famous 
for not liking broccoli. And when he became president, he said, I don't have to eat broccoli anymore. And that's sort of a, he said it a lot of times. So everyone knew that. And it's like, so that was sort of an extreme example of, of power in what you do or don't have. And I was setting up some research in, in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea around Port Moresby. And we were having a talk, looking, talking to colleagues. I won't say the setting, but it was a, it, it was a, a particular unusual place, although not, not a, it was an administrative setting, but so they were bringing out tea and they served the tea on uh, with cabin bread. You know what cabin bread is? So these giant crackers yeah. And, yeah. and probably the lowest grade tin meat you could have on it. Uh, I, I mean, you, we all know about, we've heard about spam, you know, and other kinds yeah, of yeah, yeah. yeah. That's like a 10. And this was like a two in terms of the quality <laughs> and the probably. Oh, God. And, uh, and I had to eat it with, you know, I ate it. It was not, it, it looked worse because it was did sort you have of. To eat it or you like you... I had to eat it because I was yeah. sort of there in a kind of, uh, you know, I was trying to get them to help me. So, of course, I ate it. They were very generous yeah. and it was, it was, it didn't taste quite as bad as it looked, but it looked like dog food. <laughs> wow. Just to put it bluntly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, um, I ate it. And that's one of the few times I remember having to eat something as an adult where I really had to do it. Okay. So what, what would you say is your favorite city that you've lived in? Because you've, you've lived in quite a few places. Um, what's yes. the best one? You know, when you live in a lot of places, you realize soon that nothing, no place is perfect. And every place has something that's not great about it. And every place, if you live there long enough, you hope it, you know, if you like it at all, something will eventuate. You know, I miss Auckland. I lived there for seven years. Uh, and I miss the San Francisco Bay Area. But they both, they both kind of share that uh, they're, got, they're getting very congested over time. So I live in a much less congested place now. So and I sort of have enjoyed every day of not having to deal with traffic. Or, uh, so... You know, it's a kind of, I live in a place called Lexington, Kentucky, um, which is a medium-sized city. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's nice. It's, it can get to other places relatively easily from here. And that's also a benefit. So. I liked Melbourne a lot, actually, when the times I visited it. I know you guys are in Melbourne. And uh, it, it was, uh, I've always enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. But yeah, I mean, I guess Kentucky's is quite a central sort of um, place in America, isn't it? You can mm -hmm. get... It's sort of eastern center, mm. south of the north and the north of the south, it's sort of in the middle. Mm. And so then you spend a bit of time in um, California. Like what, what would have been your favorite university to be a part of or, or do work for? Well, I, I got my degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, and I, I did a postdoc at Stanford, and they're across San Francisco Bay from each other, and they're, they're rivals, and my, my loyalties are always to Berkeley over Stanford, but uh, they're both very nice places and worth visits if you ever just are touring in the area, Berkeley especially. Uh, yeah, how did you get in originally, um, John? Was it was it, was it must have been very competitive to, to get into UC to start with? Yeah, that was a long time ago. It was less, maybe it was less competitive. They're both all, schools have gotten so much more in the US competitive about 
thing. So uh, I guess, uh, you know, I worked reasonably hard at school and high school. I, I, I scooped ice cream at Baskin Robbins 31 flavors when I was in high school. And maybe that helped. <laughs> and it would have given you good insight into um, eating habits as well, maybe working there. Without yeah, really, without realizing it. Insights you never, <laughs> insights you never wanted to have. Yeah, exactly. Like, who are the junkies? Who oh, didn't I see that guy a few hours ago getting an ice cream? Why is he getting a second or a third one for the day? Um, <laughs> so, what? So, we've, I've got a few different um, American sports here. So, NFL, mm-hmm. NBA, NBL. What, what would you say is maybe your favorite? And would you be able to give us your favorite team for each of those leagues? Well, you know, it's funny. I've moved a lot, you know, over time. And unlike some of my friends who retain their loyalty to their teams in the area, I, I, I've, I didn't do that so much. It's kind of weird, partly because my favorite football team was the Oakland Raiders, who proceeded to immediately move to Los Angeles, back to Oakland, and now moved to Las Vegas. So I kind of lost touch there. And it's, uh, it's interesting that way. Baseball is the sport I used to follow the most. And I've I, with friends, we've gone and visited various stadiums sort of just to see what they're like. And that's always an entertaining travel sort of thing to do. And so do you enjoy watching the NBA? Yeah, as in terms of just watching it, but we don't have a team here, near here. So it's yeah. kind of hard to be loyal to a team that you don't much work. Yeah. So you, can, you probably only watch um, Chef Curry hitting up all those... Um, Deep threes. And, yeah. and did you watch and much, much of him? <laughs> back in the day. Too bad he wasn't there when I was watching him. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So what, what would be your favorite thing about living um, on a farm in Kentucky with um, several dogs, chickens? Um, I think I believe you have a cat um, and your yeah, family. What? In the town since, but we lived out there for oh, okay. 17 years. I liked it because I felt like I lived mm. in the future sometimes. Because I did a lot of neuroscience research with out of different with uh, colleagues, and it's like weird. I could do brain anatomy research and look out the window and see cows or chickens, and it mm. made me feel like I lived in the future. Mm. <laughs> and so that was actually Even with a lousy internet connection out there. Yeah, and that so that was before obviously the pandemic and that John. So so you actually did a lot of your research from out on the farm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I haven't done that since the early, you know. So I think I stopped doing that in twelve or fourteen. But I mean, even through partly because then I had a lot of stuff I had to load by disk. I didn't download it, right? I had to get stuff. But I mean, it was interesting to collaborate with people all over the world, really, and based it. University of Southern California later on. And I would go to these back to, you know, like quarterly to show my face. But um, yeah, it was interesting really to to be a pioneer, I guess, because now that's much more common. We're kind of going through this, obviously this pandemic at the moment. And I, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to kind of gather your thoughts on kind of what you might think are kind of going to be the outcomes from this. Um, in terms of your area of research, like I, I've spoken to a few people at Union, they're kind of saying that because we've we've all been wearing masks here in Melbourne a lot, mm. um, sanitizing, um, we're kind of our bodies are kind of getting worse at kind of fighting off disease because we've been so 
um, protected from one another. So I, I was kind of wondering in your field, like, is there any sort of things that you think are going to come out of this um, COVID-19, um, maybe not for years to come, that, that maybe people aren't really thinking about? I think, I think there will be some good coming out of it in the sense that, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't the worst virus you could have, right? It wasn't the most communicable virus we could have, be exposed to in this sort of, as, as, a, uh, as a population, as a, as a virgin population, right? And so in a way, the fact that it only killed here in Kentucky 10,000 so far um, is actually fortunate. And maybe people will be ready to react, that will take people seriously when they say this one's coming and this one could be worse. Um, so that's an optimist view, really. Uh, I'm not sure the pessimist view would be, it's, all, it's always the same. People don't ever change. It's gonna be exactly, you know, if we wait 50 years, as long as everyone is sort of no longer around who can remember it, then it'll, it'll go. So, um, but I'll, I'll be optimistic that maybe we'll be a little bit quicker next time because like but like for most of us though like we haven't really um experienced being in a pandemic before and no. i certainly know like around melbourne there's been a lot of behavioral changes for people in the sense that um we've all had to wear face masks for so long right mm -hmm. and the government's even like changed rules um that you don't need to wear a face mask outside mm -hmm. of the yeah yet people are still kind of just used to having it on them and they'll still like wear it on their walks, um, even mm -hmm. though the science doesn't really recommend it anymore. Um, so, I mean, have you seen like any sort of specific maybe, maybe behavioral changes in people maybe in Kentucky around your area? Are people now storing twice as much food in their cupboards than well, they used to? I think so. I, they're buying them because we have the toilet paper, the dreaded toilet yeah, paper. Yeah, we have that as well. <laughs> uh, you know, people are, are going to grab it. I think people will, uh, you know, hoard a little more in advance on, on some things. Um, I think some people will, you know, we always hear about the, the minority who's uh, vocal about not wanting to do any of the government, you know, telling them what to do stuff. But then on the flip side, say you're gonna. I think you'll see people like, as in other, like in Asian countries, wear masks more. Just in any kind of season when there's something going around, because um, you know there are people who've taken that on and understand that you know like protects you against all sorts of stuff. When uh, I was going to my doctor last during the pandemic, and the, the they just said, you know, it's bizarre. We have had no flu case last year, no flu cases. And they said that used to be, you know, you'd see kids, you'd see all this stuff, but they said we have zero in, you know, and it's partly shows that COVID was easier to get than the flu because just mitigating for COVID wiped out flu transmission too. But it's a, it shows that some people I think will take on that sort of caution. They just aren't, they're not the ones complaining right now, right? They complain about people not wearing masks because everyone complains all the time. So. And so what about like eating habits as well? Because I've certainly know, have noticed that people's um, eating patterns have generally changed a bit. Like I, because in Melbourne, we literally weren't able to go out um, mm. for dinner, like to restaurants and stuff. And everyone kind of had to get, get out their cookbooks um, and, you know, be in the kitchen a lot more. And I think that's been very um, beneficial for a lot of people in terms of their diet. Like a lot of my friends, you mm. haven't seen them for a few months. And you're like, mm -hmm. wow, like, you look great. Um, yeah. 
And so I wonder, like, do, do you think those sort of um, changes from something like a pandemic in terms of people deciding to, you know, cook more food at home because that's all they could really do, do you think those sort of things will sort of carry on? Or do you think now that everything's open, everyone's just going to be like, all right, I'm back to getting, um, I don't know, whatever. I'm, I'm going down to the local Indian yeah, restaurant. I mean, or... a lot of, yeah, I think it mm. probably will because people try it and they, they learn they like it. Mm. Uh, you know, here we're going to get this economic double whammy with it. I'm not sure it's mm. so much there. Is that going out is going to be more expensive. Mm. It, it, it mm. just, it's just for food. It's just because of labor and the, the hard times they're having filling there low-wage jobs and they're having to pay more and that means and, our, and in some ways you know if you famously you go out in america at the huge servings and it's it has been underpriced right it's all based on the tip economy of paying two dollars an hour to your server and have, they're working for tips and some and you know so economically there's going to be that kind of and then people are going to have to reappraise their you know the cost benefits of going out or staying home and doing it and then delivery on top is crazy. Right? That's changed things. Mm, it absolutely, absolutely has. We, we, I don't know if, if in your supermarkets in Kentucky, have you noticed that grocery prices have just gone a bit crazy lately? Like in Australia, we go to our supermarket and there's mm. certain products you just can't find. Like I was trying to find um, like Noki the other day in the past mm-hmm. while and I couldn't, I couldn't find it. <laughs> and, then, and then like other things, everything, the price is just like inflated all of a sudden. Yeah. Are you seeing that I, kind of yeah. where you are as well? A bit, yeah. Mm. And also this sort of, un, they always talk about say supply chain. It's, yeah. it's in the you don't know what, it's not that it's, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of choice, but then <laughs> that one thing you might want might not be there. And it's just sort of weird, mm. hard to predict what, what is or isn't going to be there. But maybe that will uh, shorten the supply chain distance, which is what supposedly, you know, buying local and all these things in the U.S. Mm. is a big deal. It's like, why... We shouldn't really be shipping avocados from Central America to like when you got them. You got so many in California, don't you? Yeah, that's just mm. you know eat something, eat whatever we have here. You know, tobacco. And then I guess the last thing in terms of like um, the, the COVID and how we've kind of changed is I was wondering maybe your thoughts around the mental health side of it because I know mm. in Melbourne a lot of people suffered a lot with like loneliness and not being able to mm-hmm. see see friends um and I was kind of wondering do you think something like that will just kind of fix itself because now everyone's kind of just seeing each other and a lot of people will say when you have a, a mental health problem a lot of it's a lot of it's to do with um situation sort of mm-hmm. what situation you're in so do you think maybe what people have kind of had in terms of being more depressed and, and there's a lot of statistics um since COVID's happened do you think that will kind of just sort itself out now or do you think there's going to be certain traits that will kind of stick with people almost like ptsd perhaps i think it will sort itself out in the sense that you know if in anthropology we all would say humans are so dependent on social interaction um but not everyone is equally dependent on social interaction and in a way the sort out may be this sort of more flex you know maybe an improvement for people who who do want to work remote, who are more comfortable working, you know, without interacting with so many people. So I do think we will get more people who are social will will gravitate back to those social settings. Um, But other people will have more options for 
you know, we're still working, but not necessarily doing that because it seems absolutely looking at, I was looking at some very statistics about this the other day in surveys, there's going to be a much higher percentage, that'll be an outcome of this, and they're, most business agree, there will be a higher percentage of people working remotely, period. I mean, whether it's half of what we're seeing now or a quarter, whatever it is, it's going to be a lot higher than it was before. And some, sometimes it's because businesses realize, oh, we don't have to rent so much office space, right? They can actually save money. And people seem to be doing the amount of work they're doing. And a, a lot of them like it. So why, why go back to an office if you don't have to with your model, your business model? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of pros out of it, isn't there, in terms of people have realised how great it can be working from home. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess really the biggest losers kind of out of it are those um, people renting out office spaces, aren't they? They're kind of in a bit of strife now. Yes. Um, I think, yeah, um, it's... and I think, I think uh, John, like it ties back into the other book you wrote around the concept of a home. And mm -hmm. like a lot of my, a lot of my work colleagues, um, have really invested a lot in their home office space, mm. myself included, and, and right. you kind of get to a point where your actual, you know, you create a really, because we've been at home so much, we've put a lot more conscious thought into, okay, um, I'm going to um, have this area for work, this area for sort of living and leisure, and, mm -hmm. and people got very comfortable, I think, in that, in that context. Um, I think it's been difficult, though, for people whose home situation hasn't allowed them to do that. Oh, and, yeah. And they've been ended up sort of, you know, I don't know, working from the kitchen bench and there's all sorts of other stuff going on. And, yeah, it's been, yeah. Um, it's been interesting. Yeah, it's, it's it, you know, and after, so we're going to say it, it's, it's been a revolution. Yeah. And revolutions, they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers and it's going to be collateral damage. And, you know, it's how it all sorts out. We don't know yet, but we're kind of in the middle of it. And yeah, you, you said about spending money and I mean, there's some hundreds of dollars, a thousand dollars, the average, you know, there's really an average people have surveyed this about how much people are spending who, who just to maintain, to set up a home office. You know, yeah. it's, it's interesting that an investment people don't mind making though. Hmm. I mean, there are these surveys that show people would, you know, in, in relatively well compensated like IT fields, they, you know, supposedly offer $30,000 more U.S. a year and a lot of them would rather work at home. They, they think working at home is worth that much. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, in Melbourne, do people, I know it's, it's housing's been expensive there for a long time, relatively speaking. I mean, are people happy to live further out um, and work remotely rather than closer in? Oh, absolutely. That's a, yeah. that's a, that the, the satellite towns, they say there's something psychological about being within two hours drive of mm. the city. And basically those towns which are within two hours drive have just skyrocketed in, in value. And, yeah. Yeah. and in fact, um, uh, my co-host Ron is, um, from, is doing this from such a town. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down at Phillip Island today, actually. Oh, really? um, <laughs> So I don't know if you've penguins? been down here. It's, it's where the penguin parade is. There's a penguins and there's a big worm thing out there. Yeah, there? yeah. So I'm, that's just that's just five minutes down the road okay. that way. Oh, um, lucky just past for you. My koala bear, yeah. but um, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. So I guess that's a bit like for me. I've been able to yeah. just set up down here and and focus yeah. on this work that me and Jimmy oh, yeah. are doing. No, um, I have uh, I had family. I mean, I have uh, families of extremely big jobs in, in corporate world. 
and they came out here and visited for a week or two and he just hunkered down in uh in a in an airbnb in lexington and worked in new york i mean it's uh, amazing what can be done yeah and, and the biggest thing is, is this right now is having the zoom the zoom call mm-hmm. like where this technology has come has made it so much um, more easier because that's kind of that was kind of the trade-off from working in home is back in the day only be like you'd be on the phone and and chatting to your work colleagues but now you can actually have genuine um meetings online which i think is another huge part of it really yeah my older son started a job um you know in the pandemic with people uh you know all sort of remote and he's had a he finally met some of his call, you know, people he worked with, he only saw them this way. <laughs> and he said, it's weird to see people with their bodies. You know, that's the first thing us, they have bodies. You know, it's like, oh, that's how big so-and-so is or how tall are <laughs> Right. Okay, John, now we better get in, we really want to get into one of your books because it's a real okay. interest to Ron and I. And we want to talk about the book, um, The, the Omnivia, Ob- Omnivorous Mind and it's about our evolving relationship with food and in it you tackle all sorts of interesting issues in relation to um you know the the relationship between people and what they eat and we're keen to really discuss some of those of you today so if we think back to what you were saying about eating eating what looked like dog food in papua new guinea Mm -hmm. um that's probably the opposite of one of the points that you make in your book about how um our relationship to food is almost like that of our knowledge of, of, of a language, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like, just, can you just tell us what you meant by that? How food is almost like a language to us. Um, I think, and this also relates to, you know, even going back that if I had what you grow up with, you know, I think at a certain critical period, what you learn to eat, um, like a language that your first language you learn in this sort of critical period, it's well studied how old kids are acquire language. And I think to some extent we have, a, and I call it a theory of food, that we have a theory in our mind of what food is, because what food is, at a, whether it's at a cultural level or a, uh, any sort of economic level, whatever, it gets defined by all these other factors. And food isn't just what we can eat, right? We, we can eat all sorts of things that we don't eat. Uh, bugs or whatever, depending on where you live and how you grew up and how you grew up and how who you saw, your parents and your kin eating has a huge effect and really as you get older and you think about how firm that is it's pretty hard to dislodge it i mean you can though right and you can learn another language you can learn another language at a very high level you can start dreaming in another language so it's possible to even to shift something that's as hardwired as your first language but it takes effort for most people and so i think why is dieting so hard why is this pattern that we set and you develop you say oh i gotta do this now eat this why is that so hard well it's hard because it's been probably quite adapt you know adaptive at the past to that's how you learn to eat and eating is so important and so that's sort of what i get i meant by that's like a language so not to get hung up on it being a biologically hardwired thing but biological hardwiring that's why that's shaped by the environment Mm. And it's and it's so true though, isn't it? In in terms of why um o- obesity is intergenerational, because basically what they say is that if if the parents are kind of overweight, then the kid kind of grows up 
learning the parents' habits and they, they watch what the parent eats. And the, the parents might be like, oh, you've got to eat your vegetables, you've got to eat this. But the kid doesn't listen because he's saying mum and dad, they're going and getting um, McDonald's for dinner or whatever. Um, and it's kind of like that. And the, and the parents, will, you, you'll, they'll go and speak to nutrition and say, oh, my kid's not eating well, when really the parent needs to kind of be correcting their eating habits first. And then the kid will kind of copy what the parent's doing. Yeah, it's in that sense that you don't, nobody taught you your language. They may, we may think we go goo goo gaga and do all this stuff, but you're going to acquire that language. You know, every, every culture, every setting, the people manage to learn the language and they're doing everything differently all the time. And yet at the end, they're experts in their name in their first language. And the same thing happens I believe, with food. You, you, know, you may say, oh, eat this, it's good for you. But really the message that's much more- It's all the body language and, and what people- it's, it's who eats what. It's what, who you're eating with, when do you eat things, status. You know, People perceive status, whether they consciously perceive it or not, but they're, they're doing that as well. And all these things kind of get together. And we, we think of, we have rules that we don't even think about. It's like I was, how like if you were to go to a, a coffee break or a tea break and eat uh, mushed up carrots, you know that's that's weird, right? As a you, know, you pull out your jar of baby food and eat it, and it's like, and you that's a violation of a rule. It is, yeah, it is a violation. But you didn't even sit there and go, "Here's the rule." I I'm gonna if, write if you it did down. that, that'd be oh, you're some weird hippie. Why are you? Why are you having crushed right. up? It's, it's like it's like if you you know if you if you talk wrong, you know you say oh you made a mistake. That's a rule violation, even if you don't know why you're wronging. Mm, so true, so true. Okay. And and so another one of the interesting points you make in the book is you talk about how um, you know certain foods we might we might eat for different for sort of potentially different reasons. And like, um, if we think about um, sort of fried chicken, for example, and over here, it's quite a, um, it has a real cult following, the Kentucky fried chicken and things like this. Um, and even though everybody knows it's probably, possibly one of the worst things we could have for us, all the deep fried batter and <laughs> stuff like that on it. And in the book, you mention about, um, how it could have something to do with the, the, the uh, crunchiness of the food. So it could be the reason people might go for it might be completely unrelated, in fact, to the fact that it's chicken. It could be actually due to this other factor. Um, just want to tell us about how did you even come up with that idea? Well, I first I read about it in a, in a cookbook, and I won't even say the author because he's, he's, he's been accused of unsavory behavior. Um, he has a little thing in there in a, from his restaurant. He says, Nothing, I'll paraphrase, nothing moves food like putting crispy in the name. It says you can talk about other techniques, you can talk about this, but crispy is, is the best for selling. And, and then, he, then they say, oh, crispy is innately appealing. And I said innately appealing is sort of a red flag to an anthropologist because if you say something's innately appealing, it's like, you know, means something pretty deep biologically that why everyone would share this. It must be an answer or is it true? And you know, it's 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 reasonable supposition that you know observation that you you see crispy foods cross borders easily, right? It's like as I think Kentucky Fried Chicken goes all over the place, and then Japanese crispier foods are kind of gateway to the less crispy Japanese foods, and even those Japanese foods like tempura or, or tonkatsu, which is are borrowings from from Europe 
into Japan, then kicked out to the rest of the world. So, you know, it's a reasonable thing. So that crispy foods have this sort of strong basic appeal. And then the answer would be why. And you can answer that why at all sorts of different levels. And that's kind of what I was getting at. There's an evolutionary why maybe in that, you know, if we look at our ancestors, the foods they preferred probably would have been, and this depends on which ancestor at which time, um, you know, fruits and maybe later meat, protein, sort of umami flavors. The things that we think of as crispy, the sort of leaves and stalks and insects uh, that are naturally crispy sources, not so appealing, I think, you know, but if there are times though when you can't find your preferred foods, right, seasonally, and, and they call it, just say, call this, you know, fallback foods. What, do you, what does an animal depend on when their preferred foods aren't available, they have fallback foods. And even if those foods don't hit the other primary uh, preferences, well, maybe crispiness, the ones who also, uh, who had appeal in crispiness, maybe there is some bias towards that, that allowed you to survive when your preferred foods weren't available and your fallback foods were, if they were crispy fallback foods, if those were available in the environment. So maybe you could make an evolutionary argument there. Other people have talked about cooking. Uh, Richard Rangham uh, has made a, uh, anthropologist made a big deal about cooking. And so between one and two million years ago, cooking started happening in our, our ancestors. It's kind of hard to get find evidence of a campfire that's one and a half million years old. Try to do that, um, you get a, it's tough. But you know, there's hints of it. And also the, very, the fact that we do see our ancestors start to eat certainly larger animals than a chimp could. And cooking uh, makes a lot more of the animal available. Like when chimps go hunting and they catch a little monkey, they, they can eat the brains, they can eat the guts, but they have actually a hard time eating the, the long muscle, it's too tough. Their teeth aren't right for it. And they have no chance with a big animal. So maybe, and then, so it's probably cooking and butchering with tools, we can break them down smaller, made big animals available, our ancestors. And probably cooking uh, tubers as well, which you don't see other primates eat, but we could dig them up, cook them. There's a lot of starch in there. And both meat and those starchy tubers will get crispy when you cook them. So maybe there's an attraction there that goes back to cooking in our ancestry. But I say, okay, so that's sort of a deep reason. There's a more, there are sensory reasons, right, that when you you're eating a crispy thing, you're not just tasting it, but you're hearing it. And we all, lots of uh, people think that, you know, sensory habituation, like a, like a very expensive restaurants now like to serve lots of little dishes. You know, they don't just, one, because they say, well, you're gonna habituate. That's really become an explicit model for charging a lot more because I give you so many dishes. But, you know, so habituation is a possible thing. It's like I say, with potato chips or crisps, if you, you can, if people often like, or French, you know, or French fries, whatever, it's like, oh, it's hard to stop at one. Yeah. But you stop at one, I think, would be to take them and put them in a blender and grind them up with some water and make a tea out of it. You, you taste oh. exactly the same, right? It would, you could make a potato chip drink. It would be that flavor of potato and salt, but it would not have the attraction without the crispiness, the mouthfeel. And so, there's a sensory aspect, I think, too. And then finally, you and um, Jimmy said, 
you know, a lot of crispy foods are, are not considered good for you. And so actually just eating, doing something that's not good for you is sometimes fun, right? It's like, I shouldn't be eating chips, but I'll have just a couple here. And maybe you're, as you're at a party and if you didn't buy them yourself, then it doesn't count. And uh, you skip the celery, right? Oh, if it, when the potato chips are gone, I'll eat the celery. It's my fallback food. It's, so, that, it's that kind of illicit, I think in the book you call it illicit pleasure, illicit pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess it's that idea, you know, like um, if you're around at someone's house on a Saturday afternoon watching mm-hmm. the sport, people don't pull up a plate of broccoli, right? They pull no, up a no. plate of potato chips. Right. And, we're having fun, right? We're going to have yeah, pleasure. Now we're going to eat stuff that's pleasurable. And crispy things are pleasurable. And as, as, as you said, a lot of them are then quote, bad food. And so just on that, so flowing from that, like um, if you think about where our cravings come from, you know, like um, a lot of people say in Australia on like a Friday night might say they crave a palmer or fish and chips or something. Or, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, have you looked into this? Like how come we have these sort of urges within us for a certain sort of food at different mm-hmm. times? You know, that's, a, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, some of the cravings are going to be biological because we have these, you know, like if you're short of salt or you're, well, I mean, in a way, being hungry is a kind of craving. You need food, period. Calories is all you need. If you're hungry or thirsty, you need water. But then some of these more elaborate cravings that that are affiliate associated with with memory, right? Satisfying somehow. There's a, there's a connection there to satisfy, oh, I remember we do this. And then you think about it, right? And so you, then it creates a craving to, to fulfill that or repeat that experience. And so, you know, there's, it's just a lot of reasons are, are possible, both sort of deep-seated biological reasons, but also related to experience, related to what brought you happiness, you know, at a time. And then just sort of... a uh, a habitual, uh, you're, you know, uh, you know, we're creatures of habit too, and so sometimes just satisfying that act is a in itself satisfying. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Ron and I, we were at a um, a restaurant, fast food, the other night, and we were sort of, um, I was sort of saying to him that, like, part of the issue with say more healthier foods, and say for example, trying to get people to eat a little bit less meat, or um, or say say if we were trying to create a, a healthy fast food chain, right? Part of the issue is we don't have any um, of those uh, cues in the restaurant that are going to make it sort of homely for us. Like you kind of go into Burger King or McDonald's, and you've kind of got the the old school hamburger chain, um, fluorescent lighting sort of feel about it, mm-hmm. or Kentucky Fried Chicken, you got the pictures of the Colonel. Um, you go to a Mexican restaurant, you might have Mexican decorations. It's kind of like um, what decorations would we put in a, say, a fast food restaurant that's specialized in, say, healthy non-meat alternatives and things like that? There's nothing that comes to mind. No. Yeah, I mean, I've been to, you, know, you go to those healthy places, you can see that, they, they probably do kind of struggle a bit. If you go to a salad restaurant, right? They have these sort of, and they're, 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 it's hard to invent it and to know, know what it, it should be. 
um, in some ways it's like, and it kind of relates to something I think about, you know, you know, I know, you know, you probably know people who either become vegetarian or gluten-free or, you know, not for any health reason, because, you know, it's a, it's a choice. They've, they've seen the light, they want to do this. And then they, they start, and then there's the, the, the thing is, do they go to trying to adapt and adopt, uh, adapt what they're used to eating to this new diet or should they adopt a whole new cuisine that is already that way right i mean that's i always find it's i always think not that i do i have any of these sort of things i always think well you know if i went gluten-free i would go pretty hard east and south asian as my diet i mean i would just lots of great it's a mature cuisine it's been around for you know hundreds and thousands of years they know what they're doing they've just not been gluten-based predominantly so why not go and eat that way but no because of this theory of food i grew up eating bread or i grew up eating these sorts of cakes and so i want to you know wedge my my new diet into these the same packaging i'm used to and i think there's it gets back to like well how do you how do you market in effect, that's what really is a, a restaurant is trying to market what they have. How do you market for something where the connections aren't that strong? And how do you market when the, and the connections that exist are, they're not mainstream. And if you're trying to blow it up, you want it to be mainstream. So it is a, it's a contradiction. Yeah, because we, we were talking a lot about this, weren't we, Jimmy, in regards to like alternative um, foods and drinks, because with these, like, um, I don't know, like Beyond Meat, um, mm-hmm. the, like what sort of what sort of cultural factors are linked to that? Because if you if you were to go to a, say there was a vegan fast food chain, I'm sure there is, um, and someone was to sit down, I think the whole problem with it goes back to um, that whole carrot story earlier, perhaps, where, where there's, there's a lot of stigma attached to eating those sort of things. And someone engaging in those sort of foods like there's no cultural history to it um and people maybe when they go to eat it they're thinking about oh this was created in a lab or um all all sorts of like weird sort of thoughts like it's a bit a bit weird maybe for someone to wrap their head around whereas if you go and sit down and, and have like kentucky fried chicken there's the whole the whole history of it um in kentucky and we've always kind of eaten chicken and it's a lot easier to kind of accept yeah, I mean, it, and part of it is, is, of course, percent. Yeah, a thing like fried chicken, which has a long, deep history, um, you know, in the U.S. anyway, in the South, uh, you know, it, it seems that's ripe for, for commercialization in a sense. But yeah, you say these other things, and about you know, like yeah, it's interesting about the impossible meat. That's one thing I look at. You know, the impossible meats are there's no history. Is it's it's for you? Kind of... Yeah, it's it's a very processed. Chemical, you know, it's chemistry. More, you know, it's chemistry and probably genetics at some level. Whatever they're using, you know, to, to to put in there. Ultimately, we're going to get this sort of lab genetic meat. Um, so it's very highly processed. Now, you you may be that. Well, actually, you're not eating it. Those aren't going to be sold as for animal lovers. They're going to be sold for climate lovers, right? The argument is going to be. This is locally produced. I can we can cut these these uh, polluting supply chain. We don't have to go to from in the U. We don't have to get Australian beef. We don't have to get you know South American beef here in the U.S. But there they are a weird. It's a, it is something new that's going to come in. This 
I mean, on the other flip side, you know, like you have Cheetos, you know, any of these things are already highly processed chemical things. Yeah. Into their mouth without even thinking twice about it. So, you know, it's a, that's where I say it's a perception issue. It's, this is supposed to be looking like something, you know, that came out of an animal, not something that's processed totally. It's a weird thought, isn't it? I guess eating those, yeah. those things. So you wrote another book titled The Lives of the Brain, which talks a bit about human evolution and the organ of the mind. And I was actually kind of thinking, when you're talking about crispy food, um, you're talking about where it sort of came from and you're talking about how it kind of came from humans cooking, our ancestors cooking food and being able to cook like animals and stuff. And I, I like read somewhere about that they reckon that kind of the reason why our human mind has evolved so much more than other species was our discovery of cooking. Um, and that's kind of, you know, why we've, we've got like significantly um, higher IQ than other animals. Have you done much sort of like research in that sort of area or? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, in that book, I talk about the, the basic issue that's come that the reason why it's, it's something like that probably had to have happened is that you have to remember that if we separated from the other African apes 6 million years ago, and we had as our ancestors who are walking around on two legs had a good four million year stretch where brain size didn't increase appreciably. Yeah, if you dig up an oscillopithecine or whatever they want to call it, artipithecus, they have many new names these days. They're very, we're very, we're in a, we're in a splitting time in, in paleoanthropology. Someday they'll lump them back together, but right now everybody's finding a new thing and they give it a new name. And, but basically four, two million years ago, they have ape-sized brains. And then in the last two million, so that's four million years of ape-sized brains. But it's in the last two million years that brain size tripled, right? Well, our brains are about three times as big as the great apes. And something that has nothing to do with walking around on two legs set it off. And not only does something set it off, but to grow brains and to grow little kids with big brains who are dependent on you, you need to... They, almost everyone would agree. They wouldn't necessarily agree on how or why or how it happened, but nutritionally we needed more than what you would see in, uh, we presume in other. So, so me, it was, just so happens, we start to see stone tools, we find bones with cut marks on them. So something, we know that's happening. Now, did they have to be cooking? Maybe, right? That's more suppositional but something is happening and there's this feedback loop with increased nutrition, increased uh, caloric intake and increased brain size. And it all kind of has to happen together. Otherwise you wind up, there's these things called robust australopithecines who, who just got bigger and bigger back teeth. Their brains didn't get any bigger and they last quite a while longer. And then they go extinct. I wonder if they got helped going extinct, you know, down to about a million years ago because uh, they don't seem to have made it today. So cooking, perhaps, certainly, you know, meat, and then all the ideas about, well, are we sharing our food more? Did fathers finally get involved and do their part? Probably, right? That's a that's starting to happen some way, even if the, the kids are being provisioned by more than the mother. But provisioned with what? Right? 
And so where do you come up with these ideas, John, for these books? Like what, what, what sparked you to do, you know, just into these fascinating areas? Like what, what sort of sparked you to write them? Oh, well, cooking, I've always liked to eat and uh, cook a little. And, you know, it's always sort of been in the background. I mean, um, so food and the cooking and the brain evolution working on, yeah, I worked on contemporary brains. I worked on, I did a lot of research in, in, in mental health and mental illness cross-culturally. And that led to a sort of brain and looking at patterns of brain aging and things like that. So then I started thinking about, well, how did this brain get to be the way it was? Um, and then home was sort of, actually home book did relate to going way back to thinking because there's so much homelessness amongst severe mentally ill people. I mean, what is homeless? And I think I had thought about at the time, well, what do we mean by homelessness? Why is it resisted and, and a problem in the US especially? Um, so, you know, different, different uh, sources that all kind of reflect evolution of human behavior ultimately. How do we, how do people get to be like people? Mm. One of the, it's like the mental health stuff. It's one of the issues, you know, Ron and I talk about a lot is like, you know, we have to think about some other way. So if someone presents with mental mental health issues to their doctor, they'll get prescribed antipsychotic mm -hmm. drugs and things like this immediately. Through your research, have you come up with any other, any thoughts on treatment or any thoughts on sort of um, behavioral factors or environmental factors that, that could be used for treatment? Treatment, I mean, I haven't thought too much about treatment. The thing I've been... What I would say, the general message, especially in these sort of complex, so in some cases, severe mental illness, but not, is to keep in mind sort of the, how people um, vary. You know, we hear the words autism spectrum, right? And Asperger, autism spectrum. Spectrum's a great concept there. And I think it would apply to, to schizophrenia or it applies to bipolar illness. There's a spectrum, and one reason one reason it's been really hard to find a gene for any of these things. You can find that there's families, right? There's 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 a genetic component, but we're having nobody can find the gene, or they find a whole pile of genes, right? That different versions all add up to it, and that's that contributes to sort of the line that we draw is going to be arbitrary ultimately, right? In 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 some of these forms, and that makes treatment harder. It also tends to, to, to do some weird things for how, you know, how clinical medicine has to think. It has to think, you know, what, it has to think a certain way, either you have it or you don't. And I guess, I guess treatment with, with those at the moment with like bipolar and schizophrenia, it is, it is kind of pretty much trial and error. Like I kind of mm -hmm. know for people with bipolar, um, that they need to like you know take something like lithium right and they'll, and they'll actually spend you know a few months um kind of correcting what the correct amount of lithium dose is for mm -hmm. each person yeah. but i mean so I mean, where, where, where do you kind of stand in terms of um personalized dna sort of treatment plans for people like do you think that's kind of the way of the future and and kind of how like where we'll kind of end up in terms of food and even like nutritional recommendations that will basically do like a mouth swab and then that will kind of be able to calculate you kind of need to you know solve all your problems or, or however you right. want with it <laughs> yeah if, if it's for things 
you know, that will work for things that there's a cure for. Mm. You know, and it's really an interesting, I, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Huntington's chorea, which Huntington's disease, which is this genetic disease, which often has a very late onset, right? You're an adult who actually already had a kid, maybe children, and then you learn that you have it. It's sort of, and you know, there's been a test for that, genetic test for that for decades now, 20 years, I don't know, longer. And a very small percentage of the people will take it who are involved. They don't want to know. Why would you want to know? There's nothing that can be done for them right now. Now, I think like some of the, the breast cancer diseases, uh, you know, they can do a mastectomy, right, in advance. And maybe some people, women, I'm not sure if there's ovarian genetic, but, you know, ovarian cancer is very hard to detect. That's why women die so, you know, often from it so bad because you don't know you have it until it's too late. So these sorts of things were, okay, there's a possible intervention. So multiply that by a thousand or 10,000 times, all these different conditions that you could have. I think the ones where maybe you can do something would appeal. Um, you know, I, I don't know anyone. Do you know anybody who's had any of the genetic tests that, I don't know if they're selling them there. You know, supposedly I can, you know, swab my mouth and find out all sorts of things. I tell you, there are things I don't, I don't want to know about my uh, Alzheimer's <laughs> disease yeah. status. Yeah, I, I actually work at a pharmacy, John, and um, we sell. There's a there's a company called My DNA, and they mm. they sell DNA kits um, that people take home. They basically then send it back to their lab right. or whatever, wherever it is. And then from that, they say that you can then download their app and it will, will give you recommendations on what you should mm -hmm. do based on your DNA. But in terms of all that, though, I think it's way too early and I definitely wouldn't recommend this oh, yeah. to go and do that because yeah. um, basically in those, in those study, in those reports, like it will say that there's a certain um, strand of DNA you have that you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat a certain type of food. You shouldn't eat Kentucky Fried Chicken because it will cause you to have you know um, diabetes or something um, but then what will happen is they'll then find a strand of DNA that says oh you should like um, Kentucky Fried Chicken will lower your chance of um, mm -hmm. you know something else so it's kind of the, the, it's kind of too early to oh, kind yeah. of um, you know draw conclusions from what you're kind of finding in people's DNA I think there's one, there's like one gene though, that's like a fat obesity gene that they've found mm -hmm. is um, highly correlated. And it's actually, they've been able to find, um, like make over like 300 different diets from it. But um, mm -hmm. besides that, like it's still very, in it's in, it's in, in its infancy. Um, sure. In yeah, terms I mean, of it's where sort it's of, kind of. It's kind of like all these, again, this sort of, this sort of spectrum thing, because there's, you know, fetal ketonuria, you know, is this real basic uh, enzymatic pathway is screwed up. And if the kid, that's why the kids all get tested of it at, at birth. And if you have it, then you, you have to go to these weird diets. You have to avoid, well, Diet Coke is one of, you know, uh, that's whatever the sweetener in there has the, has the enzyme, but all sorts of other things too have it. And there's something, well, yeah, I want that genetic test because I know exactly the threshold, what the treatment is for it. And it, actually, maybe if you live, I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure if you'll go to adulthood, maybe you don't have to worry quite as much. But so that's at one end of this genetic interventional spectrum. And so many of the other things involve much more complex genetics and much more complex environments. So it really is hard to, to do with interventions. And then you wind up, you know, a 10% 
surplus for this association is is huge in a in a study. But ten percent thrown into an actual person with a hundred other variables having to do with other genes and their environment, it's hard to again to make that be useful. But that's kind of the bottom line. I suppose, and I suppose you think about your research, John, like into our, our relationship with food and into our relationship with the environment at home and how our brains evolved and things. I guess what you're saying is maybe we should actually be thinking about these things from, from an environment point of view. Like maybe to get people eating healthier, we should be thinking about all sorts of different things. Um, yes, that's the, I mean, it's, the world's complicated. You're complicated. You're, you're like, it's interesting to make sort of analogies. Like, you know, we talk about evolution and all these patterns, you scientists, but you know, there's only one evolutionary history for us. It's a, it's a single story and all these theories around and around it. Yes. But you know, something, there's only going to be actually one thing that actually happened that led our evolution. And the sort of thing, we can make all sorts of statistical generalizations, which are important and have a huge impact at all sorts of different levels. But then, and, but you're you. And I mean, I have this body with this very specific set of interactions in it. And yes, you know, biology is really important. And some genes are really, especially if they're off, are more important for intervention. But then, you know, how I fit in that story, you have to kind of determine on your own, how you fit into the population. What's good for you may not be good for another person. Ron and I noticed that you're, according to your website, now your website also said you were still living on the farm. So you know, I might be out of date. Um, <laughs> but you're working on a book about race in the United States in the 19th century. Did you want to just tell us quickly about that? Is that still a project? You know, I've been working on it. I've had trouble selling it. But, you know, it's just to go back in the, I think people are, I mean, go back. I mean, this, this how people use history and how, uh, has always been a kind of interesting topic. I mean, or we history is is there is there is a you know again I've just talked about how well there was a way things happened in evolutionary history, but how people have used evolution varies so much on on their current perspective, and so I sort of find that kind of fascinating about the ideas that were being generated and the stories that were generated, you know, in that time about anthropology is that's a non-evolutionary anthropology, right? This is before 1859. And so if people had, well, well, I have to say, we have a perspective on that as anthropologists who even look into that history as all those, those guys, they, I mean, they were all, I mean, it's, it's, to put it bluntly, they're all racist by modern standards. They just are, they just are. Um, their view is, is they're European supremacist, anybody who's doing science at that time. And so it's an interesting viewpoint, but it doesn't mean they were, they were all evil all the time. It's just that was their culture. And so there's a lot of things about how we use that and how they were using it to whatever means. And also that if you read it carefully enough, they weren't, there are little ideas in there that are quite modern, although we tend to shove them all into a pre-modern. And in a way, perhaps it might be that some of the like some of the issues in the United States at the moment is it, you know, as opposed to kind of this is just an opinion, John, and mm -hmm. I've, I haven't lived there, just what I mm -hmm. see on the news. 
but um, it could be that as opposed to trying to think about like what's the issues here and today, maybe we can actually draw back. They could actually be due to these what was going on back a couple of generations ago. Mm -hmm. And that could help us understand kind of the current situation, do you think? Yeah, I think people, I mean, the one sort of basic thing is the Civil War in the U.S. ended in 1865. And it was 100 years before civil rights really took off. And so it is a lot more in terms of, of these sort of basic sort of racist ideas and things. You know, it really is only a, a generation, a long generation and so sort of the response, there's always a counter-revolution often to the revolution and it's, and it's sort of being exploited now. And there, there are structural issues in terms of how the US is set up. I mean, Republicans win the presidency without getting the majority of votes, you know, because we have a certain system that's very odd by, but this has happened now multiple, and I always thought, wow, if that ever happened, they change it. But then it, of course it becomes impossible to change because the one who's benefiting, but it is a, you know, it is a, why, why is the appeal? Why is bringing this in so appealing? Cause there's a core that is worried about what they're losing to, you know, and who they're losing it to. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I have, I have both a Japanese background and a background of, of uh, you know, back to the, almost the, the initial settlement of the US on the Allen side. And it's sort of an odd perspective. And I'm amazed that where my father grew up in a part of Iowa, um, which is the has become a very reactionary area. They vote for very reactionary people. So I look back at his old little hometown uh, high school and half the names are Hispanic now. And so, but those people don't vote. And so they brought in as agricultural laborers. And somehow this is obviously there's a reaction to who's taking our jobs, right? But the other side is no, no one there wanted to do those jobs. So it's a, it's a real interesting time. Mm, I wonder, do you think a lot of it, this might be a bit of a generalization. Um, in, in Australia, we kind of have similar problems. I, I, I find that it's a specific um, population of people who perhaps um a kind of will make comments like oh they're stealing our jobs um mm. the, the people that are migrating to australia um it's hard to get into uni and, and et cetera et cetera mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a bit of an opinion that a lot of it's to do with our older sort of um australian people and so we I, do, do you think like that's sort of true and do you think that perhaps um that sort of thing will phase out or do you think that's always intergenerational and there's always going to be people in society that will make those um, racist sort of remarks well it's interesting of course the the older people who are voting this way in the u.s were the old hippie the old hippies right they're the boomers i'm right at the i'm sort of i'm slightly at the edge of that <laughs> uh, my sister my older sister is a true boomer it's like i i yeah i can tell you i don't remember when I was alive, but I don't remember John F. Kennedy being shot. I always think that's a big one. If you were, you're old enough to remember that, then you're a real boomer. Um, but you know, there is a bit of of that sort of generational. They always say it, it swings to the you swing to the right a bit usually as you get older. Um, but I'm surprised. I think something else is going on too besides age. But it's interesting that. Uh, you know that issue and then on the flip side of that is the lowering birth rates though it's 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 i don't know how 
Australia, US. Yeah, so in a way, if, if you're following that theory, it'll get worse, won't it? If there's less, if, if our pop, if, if we have 100 people, there's now going to be 40 people that are in that category. Yeah. Um, rather I mean, than we have 20, a weird like, age structure. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, just like it was weird for the boom. I mean, those boomers have really messed up age structure. They, they you know, they were, you know, they're almost, I looked this up, although the US is at much larger population, there was like as many teenagers from the boom as there are from the current population, even though the total population is about, was half then. This shows how youth dominated that society was. And now they're kind of older dominating things too, <laughs> yeah. in a disproportionate way. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. Just in terms of your, your next research, John, um, what, what, what are you sort of looking at now? Is there anything on the go you wanted to, you're um, able to mention? Don't want you to give away any secrets. Depends on if I have time, I'm talking to, strangely about home and food. I've been talking to marketing people a lot. They, I've, I, you know, it's, it's a, a different world, marketing and advertising consulting. Um, but they're interested in these ideas. That they they mm -hmm. hope to sell things to people. Um, I've been thinking about plants and gardening, gardens a lot, um, mm. and potentially about, you know, because that's going to relate to climate change and how people relate to the green environment. And a lot of that environment, you know, it's all nice to talk about big parks and natural things, but that's not the reality for most, most people's interaction is, is with a, a totally artificial, you know, artificial environment produced by people for people. And how is that going to, how does that relate to our past and to our future? So that's some ideas I've been, that's something I've been looking into. Hmm. Okay, sounds good. Um, I miss the gardening. I'm living in an apartment up here, John, 40 floors up. And uh, I can't uh, wait, yeah. I can't, can't wait to get back on ground level and <laughs> yeah. um, feel yeah. some dirt again. But yeah, uh, yeah pros and cons. Okay. Yeah. So we like to just talk about, I think we mentioned at the start, like around mental health and it's a huge issue here in Melbourne after the lockdowns and things. And mm. so one was a little bit specific tailored to you this one, but if our, if, you know, if our listeners knew someone who was say struggling a bit mentally or, um, uh, and not eating well, or, you know, in sort mm. of a bad habit about food and things like that, um, what do you think would be the best way to help such a person? Have you got any thoughts on that? There are lots of different ways I go about it. It's, it's sort of like you could talk to people about food and you could, eat, you, could, you could, you know, talk about, you know, trying the same or different things. How do other people eat? So you make food part social again. And food is, you know, if you have friends who are interested in it, um, you know, getting out as with food, you know, it's sort of like part of what cabbage you get kind of, you know, you get sort of, you don't get cabin fever, you, you get sort of just, you almost, it's the opposite. You just get used to being indoors. It's not like you're, it's not like you're agoraphobic that you're afraid to go out, but it's just, again, it's like, oh, it's not worth it or it's the habit or it's this, this shift from that. And in a lot of cultures, some, some cultures make food and some people, food is a much higher priority in their lives. And for some of them, it is, it, you know, it goes down, right? It, because then it's painful, right? When they realize, oh, I don't do this anymore. But a lot of people actually who live indoors, they intensified it at least for a short time, right? The whole baking thing that was the, I don't know if you had that in Australia, uh, that when the first lockdowns came, people went baking crazy and you couldn't get flour because people were 
ones who are in it. And then, of course, it subsides as people find out baking's kind of can be a pain and it doesn't always turn out right or if you just get tired of it. But at least there was an attempt there to, to do that. Um, everything's hard when you don't know when the end is coming. And that's, that's what's the, to me, there are all these stressors that are coming with this pandemic. One, isolation. Uh, two, you, some people who've lost their jobs. So there's economic stress, there's isolation stress. But the stress of not knowing when it'll be over is, is, oh, is probably the worst one in some ways. And so it's, you know, food, you, you, food, think about what you eat and what you have actually is something you can control. And say, I'm going to take control of this part of my life. I can't control when the pandemic's going to be over. But I can still go to the store. I can still get food, and I can choose that. And I can prepare it how I want, when I want. And I think that's something maybe as I babble on that I might emphasize a lot. That it's up to you, and this is one thing that you do have control. So take control of that. Yeah, it definitely. It kind of starts to where like just going to the supermarket and being really strict to what you're buying, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Kind of, and just mm, it's a it's a tough question. Say, I'm gonna go in and say I'm gonna buy something I've never bought before. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that's kind of a fun thing. And I, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe I'll buy our rutabaga today or whatever yeah. you call it, Swede or whatever. Yeah. 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 I've roasted some Swedes the other yeah. week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's about it for us today. Yeah. Appreciate your generosity of your time, John. And um, looking forward, really looking forward to seeing what you research next. Well, thanks for having me. Great chatting. Ron, what a fascinating bloke. I was, I was interested in what he said about alternative food products. Like, take alternative meats, for example. There's two options, isn't there? Do they use science to make the product look and taste like sort of normal meat? Or should the alternative meats just have their own look and taste entirely of themselves? I think it's quite an interesting question. And the same could be said for non-dairy milk, ice cream, etc. Like for example, a good example is take plant-based milk. There's no reason for the carton of oat milk, for example, to look like the normal milk carton, but I think they deliberately make them that way so it doesn't feel like such a change. Yeah, well, I guess with the alternative meats and milk, Jim, they sort of have to look like something, don't they? And, and I think making them sort of resemble or look similar to the real deal can be quite nice for people who perhaps have just become vegan um, as some sort of level of familiarity. Whereas, you know, if they want more unique things that aren't mimicking something, there's all these other great cuisines you can have. And a bit like what John was saying, how if he was to be gluten-free, he would, you know, just eat South Asian food as opposed to Western foods, which are naturally um, high in gluten products. Yeah, good point. So you're vegan, Ron. What cuisine do you think naturally caters well for you? I find Mexican, um, Indian and Thai food to be the best sort of ones for vegans. Um, and, you know, speaking of Thai, Jimmy, what's that name of the Thai joint we go to in Caulfield? Oh, Ron, that's called Derby Thai and they do an excellent $8.50 lunch special, as you and I know. It's top quality value and a real treat, and probably our first recommendation for the R&J Yarn listeners. So, possibly what touched me most about John's interview 
was how he said that food can be considered a language. It makes me think of a time I was chatting to a friend in Malaysia and she was saying that the idea of takeaway is quite foreign to them. It's always eaten. Food's meant to be shared with others where it was made. So it's more of an experience. I think in Western culture, we've definitely lost a bit of that. And sometimes it can just feel like refueling. Yeah, we definitely have lost a bit of the cultural sort of background to eating food and how we engage with it. And it sort of stems back to why we kind of have high obesity rates as we're becoming more disconnected from what we eat with these takeaway services and it's sort of become a bit of a commodity food. Yeah, I actually really agree with you about that. What did you think about how he explained that crispy food seems to be so popular that it's actually able to cross cultures? Yeah, so he was saying the crispiness gives us another sensation in our mouths that reminds us of what our ancestors ate. It's an example of how what we eat is evolutionary. And I found it funny when he said nobody would blend up potato chips, even though it would taste the same. And that's simply because it wouldn't give us that same sensation of the crunch. Interesting, isn't it? It was a great chat. I just reckon it's so healthy to step outside our day-to-day areas of work and study and to think about stuff like this. I loved it and found it very thought-provoking. Yeah, agreed, Jimmy. It was very thought-provoking and... We have more interviews that will also be thought-provoking coming up. So, Jimmy, who do we have next week? Well, it's exciting and very topical given the run-up to Christmas. We will be sharing an interview we did with Phil Hude, who is the owner and operator of Armadale Cellars here in Melbourne. It's a really prestigious wine store, and Phil is passionate about what he does. Here is a preview. Yeah, because we did something like 65 Zooms over the pandemic. And, you know, for me, I was doing what I love. You know, and I felt very, very fortunate that during what was easily, you know, my lifetime and most people's mm. lifetimes, obviously, till now, one of the hardest times that I could offer some enjoyment, you know, and, and relief, let's call it, from, from the, the hardship of what was happening. If you don't want to miss that podcast, check out our website, theyarn.org.au, and subscribe to our newsletter so you'll always be up to date with our releases. And lastly, if you really enjoyed this episode here at The Yarn, we would appreciate if you subscribe and leave five-star feedback on your favourite podcast platform. Those are the two best ways to support us to keep the lights on and the podcast coming. And as always, feel free to send us an email to podcast at theyarn.org.au. We love hearing from you.